Hello everyone, Amberhorn here, and welcome back to the Tangled Crossroads. We've got another another episode here. Today we're talking about player agency, and I have brought back a friend of mine. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey everyone, I am the Dungeon Meister, and now I am back at the table once again. Yep, so, so today we're going to be talking about player agency and how characters can influence story, and we'll probably get into... Some of the crazy things that happened in the last campaign. I'm surprised you chose me for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a fellow DM, it just seemed appropriate, especially since I broke your yeah, campaign say, a number you, of times. You have to know that you're going to be the target of fire here. <laughs> um, for those of you who have maybe watched some of the Land of Soren videos, uh, you know, in in the later parts of that campaign, Theo gets up to some pretty crazy shit. So like a long distance phone call and blowing up a wizard tower. <laughs> so yeah. let, let's start with the phone call. Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah, so, we'll save the tower for later. Yeah. <laughs> Put that on the back burner just a little bit. So the long distance phone call I, I don't remember exactly what was going on at the time. You know, we had this army that had been attacking coastal villages and mm -hmm. stuff. This this um, Sahagan-based or aquatic-based mm -hmm. army. And my character being aquatic-based and from the plane of water originally um, was trying to get in contact to try to... I, I want to say I was trying to negotiate... Yeah, you were... So, at that time period, what was going on was... There was a threat of a like imminent invasion from these aquatic people that they were plotting to invade uh, one of the cities that was in my world. The city was Arcanium, and there was an invasion coming, and you guys knew about this. Um, however, in a previous encounter in the campaign that was like clear back towards the beginning almost, was you had encountered one of these aquatic people after a battle. Um, deep beneath the coastal waters of the village that you had just fought to protect. Right, I'd gone out swimming and and was kind of... Just looking for stuff. Yeah, I was kind of looking to see yeah. where they were coming from, and I ran into her. Yeah, and you guys had a, a very pleasant conversation. Um, man, unfortunately, you forgot to ask her her name. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of where all of this started. Um... Because then, uh, you know, fast forward back to where we were, this invasion is coming, and you thought, hey, maybe I could get a hold of this person via sending to, you know, maybe talk to them and see if you could, you know, talk them out of it or gain more information, more insight. Um, and I said, hey, that's a great idea. What's her name? Keep, and then keep in mind, I'm a druid and don't <laughs> actually have sending. True. Yep. Um, we were kind of relying on the party, but then, you know, when it's, yeah, who are you contacting? Everyone just kind of looked at each other and then looked at you, and you're like, damn it! <laughs> um, so, but I, I thought... I, I didn't get that in the notes. <laughs> I thought that you had had a pretty good idea, and so that's kind of where that session ended, and then when we came back to it the next week, you had kind of concocted this, you know, pretty very well thought out and very well designed scheme of how exactly you were going to attempt to get a hold of this person. I which, think I spent about three or four hours writing that ritual thing out. To, yeah, to, and, and you know, that, that was awesome. And, and that's something that, like, I as a DM, I love rewarding, you know, player creativity. And, and to see this kind of effort 
you know, you would almost be be cruel to say, you know, I'm sorry, you just wasted four hours. I'm not doing anything about it. Uh, and so we kind of talked in the session. You kind of talked me through how this was going to work. And essentially what you wanted to do was you wanted to send a message through the waves in the ocean. Right, because, you know, in the real world, aquatic creatures like whales and dolphins can send messages long distance using the sound waves through the water and, and through vocalization and, because sound travels so mm -hmm. much better in the water. So I was thinking, you know, I'm an aquatic creature. I should be able to do <laughs> this to some extent. You know, I'm from the plane of water. It's probably something I've done before. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe not to this extent. You know, I, I don't know where they are at. They could be anywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, part of this ritual, you had kind of, um, you know, sacrificed an item that was, you know, fairly important to your character to mm -hmm. kind of help improve the odds. Um, and so I, I don't remember the exact ratios, but I think I gave you somewhere in the, the ballpark of a 30% chance of success. I don't remember if it was 25 or, or 30, but... I think you started off at like 25, and because I gave up the sand dollar necklace mm -hmm. that I had... We may have bumped it up. Yeah, you bumped it up bit. to like 30, and I just barely squeaked under it with the roll. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I let you roll a D100, um, let you call high or low for your odds of success, and, and you rolled the dice, and by some miracle, you landed in the success threshold, and, you know, that can only be defined as, like, a, a moment that, you know, truly shaped the, the campaign, because um, the after effects of everything that had happened, where this message did reach this person, and, you know, you were able to come in contact with them uh, again, um, it, it completely changed the the outcourse of of the things that were kind of in motion to happen, right? Because because none of that was planned for in your storyline to begin with. I mean, mm -hmm. this, and I think the actual triggering of the invasion of Arcanium was also something that my character was quite possibly <laughs> a part of. Because I made the mistake of, hey, why don't you come to Arcanium and we'll have a conversation. <laughs> Not realizing I'm basically inviting them to invade the city. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think somewhere along the lines, part of the reason the like invasion had triggered was because um, you know one of the items they were looking for was in that city anyway. That right. um, you you successfully got a hold of this person, got into contact with them. Uh, you know this very elaborate ritual, and against all odds, everything went in your favor. Ah. And I'll be damned if you didn't ask her name again. <laughs> <laughs> right? It wasn't until we actually meet the third time that I'm like, what is your name? Ugh. <laughs> uh, that's... <laughs> that Kenora just, was yeah, her name? Yeah, Kenora. <laughs> uh, and she ended up, at the end of the campaign, she was an ally of the group. She was. Yeah, yep. we, we completely flipped her from being an adversary to being an ally. Uh, and that was not the first time you guys had done such a, such a maneuver. Um, the kind of very first quote-unquote villain you encountered was another druid by the name of Astoyo, who, you know, he kind of lived uh, in his own little section outside of the city where he kind of lived in a cave. 
Um, and he had his own wolf pack that he kind of rounded up and, and led and lived with. Um, One and, of which was his daughter. Yep, and he, he also had a, a small daughter who was ballpark like eight years old or so, and, and she was blind. She couldn't see, and she wasn't really talkative, but, uh, you know, you didn't know any of this really in your first encounter. You right. didn't know kind of his, his story and what he was about, and you basically just had an opportunity to, to you know negotiate with him or just fight him and kill him. I, I remember pushing the negotiation side a little more because he was like, I mean, campaign-wise, he was the first druid that we had encountered since my character's backstory. Because there was a druid in my backstory that we actually never ended up running into. Um, Elusive. Yeah. But the, you know, Estoyo being a druid, I was like, I want to get to know this guy. I want to know what he knows as far as wild shape stuff, because that was something I was trying to focus on a little bit. And I know Percy, another character in the group, was very adamant about wanting to fight. Well, and, you know, it's hard to say that he, he was in the wrong, too, because, you know, your first encounter with Estoyo was on the side of a road where there was clearly, like, a something bad had happened, you know, there were, like, civilian corpses and a broken-down cart and kind of blood all over the place, and, you know, Estoyo was the only one there to, you know, kind of... Seemed to be the person who had done it. ...reap the benefits, and uh, almost kind of alluded to the fact that he had done it, and what were you going to do about it? Right. Um, and so, you know, Percy was, you know, kind of adamant about wanting to fight him because, you know, he had just potentially murdered all of these people. And so I think that was a kind of a, a first kind of like, I don't want to say like tension moment, but it was a first kind of really dispute between, you know, acting immediately out of assumption and, you know, maybe slowing things down to figure out what was going on. Yeah. Keep in mind, our characters at that point had really just met each other. Mm -hmm. We, we were like, even... Yeah. Uh, the, the, you met him like session two or three. Yeah, it was pretty quick. Yeah, we were only a couple of days into the actual game time. Mm -hmm. So we hadn't really gotten to know each other. So we were basically strangers working together as a group. And here we are having this conflict. <laughs> so... Um, and Estoyo ends up becoming quite important to us. Both him and his daughter become quite important to us throughout the rest of the campaign. Yeah, yeah, and it's just kind of like a, a flowing river, you know, with um, Estoyo kind of, kind of talk him, talk to him a little bit, and learn like a very, very small portion of information about him, where you know maybe he's not really as bad as he seems. Um, and uh, you ended up, like, parting ways from there. Um, some of you felt good about it. Some, some still felt pretty bad about it. But uh, kind of leading into, you know, we'll come back to Estoyo in a little bit, but I think that kind of leads into the next big encounter <laughs> with the dragon. <laughs> this is a black dragon that we run into... They are, they are in, like, this swampy, marshy area. It's more of a marsh than a swamp. And they see this black dragon that's just kind of hurling away. And, I think and, we were fighting, like, giant crocodiles or something. Yeah, we were hunting, hunting crocodiles. And, you know, after fighting these crocodiles, you start hearing these loud thumping sounds. 
and trees are kind of shaking and you look and you see this black dragon just you know barreling down running away from something um, and it's got holes in its wings its wings are torn you know you can you make the assumption that it probably can't fly it's pretty beat up you know you can see scales are torn off of it it's kind of bleeding um, and you see that it's running away from a hydra a hydra is chasing it in this marshland and the dragon not being able to fly starts running over this bridge and you guys are on the other side of the bridge and the dragon kind of stops and looks at you and it looks back at this hydra that's chasing it and in this moment i presented you guys with the what do you do what do you want to do you know you it's pretty weak it doesn't look strong you think you can maybe fight it or you know what are you going to do I think I remember running up to it and yelling, "Don't eat me!" <laughs> and then, and then we we fought the Hydra together with the with the, with the dragon, mm -hmm. um, who eventually became my character's mentor. Yeah, it, it was kind of a, a just a crazy turn of events where they they fought with this dragon against the Hydra, and you guys weren't very high level at no, the time. I think no. you were level maybe four, yeah, five, and, 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 it, and if the dragon had been at Full, full power, we would have been toast. You guys would have run, probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was that kind of temptation of like, it's it's, you know, it's low HP. It can't fly. You know, think of what think of the rewards for killing this. Right. You know, what are you gonna do? And you guys decided to kind of align yourselves with it, not knowing. You know, I think somebody had made some checks and it was like black dragons are like of all the dragons, like black dragons are evil. You know, they are the like one of the most cruel and there was Percy and and um uh, I think it was Percy that made, made Percy and Knox had made those I think roles, so I think. And you know, so against against the odds, once again, uh decide to team up with this thing, you fight the dragon or the fight the Hydra and you know a few sessions later after kind of learning more information, this dragon basically tells you that it's not a black dragon it's in fact a gold dragon that has been cursed in a to kind of revert to this black dragon's body um and it enlists you guys for help uh fighting you know wanting to break its curse and in doing so you know uh the course of the campaign goes by where you do decide to to help it and free it um you know, once it reverts to its true form, uh, you know, Thelzar was the dragon's name. Uh, Thelzar became a, you know, almost vital NPC to to the campaign, you know, from that point forward. I think Theo <coughs> saw him as a, another father figure. Since, since he had been somewhat estranged from his own parents due to his backstory, um, you know, his, his parent... It wasn't that there was, you know, some sort of animosity between Theo and his parents, but the uh, the village that he had lived in had basically cast him out. Um, they tried to sacrifice him, actually, and they thought he was dead. So Theo had been away from his parents for like three years and saw Thelzar as a father figure and ended up getting taught a new druid circle mm -hmm. that you created Yep, as a, a circle of the dragon, which basically uh, took a lot of inspiration from like um, not like circle of the moon in terms of like being able to shapeshift into something that's kind of outside the realms of 
what a druid can normally turn into. Uh, and I kind of loosely based it on like being able to turn into an elemental and what that does for like wild shape economy and stuff like that. But it, it essentially, in a nutshell, allowed the user to, you know, turn shapeshift into a dragon. You know, at early levels it was a wormling, but then as you grew higher, um, eventually the wormling turned into a young dragon. Uh, and although it never got any bigger than a young dragon at even higher levels, um, you know, you kind of untapped its, you know, full breath weapon potential. Because um, early on you only rolled half your damage, but then eventually you got all right. of it. And, and I, I was using the stats of a white dragon mm -hmm. uh, for that form, but we had themed it so that it was essentially a dragon made out of water. Water. Mm -hmm. Which was really kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, you know, after all this with Thelzar, uh, Thelzar ends up helping you kind of advancing your quest which uh, against the Matron, which the Matron was the one who you had learned that was responsible for those marks on your hand. Right. And so eliminating the Matron was kind of your ticket to freedom because these marks were slowly killing your characters. Um, and it was a very big deal for your character. Yeah, because my character, being a shifter, had a short lifespan compared to everybody else. And so, as a character with a shorter lifespan, the mark was accelerating, was, was accelerating through me more. Mm -hmm. um, I think I had started to turn um, at, at certain points. Um, I remember blood becoming... Something yeah. that the the matron was a vampire, and this mark was essentially a a vampire marking that was allowing her to turn people into vampires without having to bite them. Um, the process was just much slower than like what a bite would do, but it, it it could essentially be done without the vampires ever having to do anything. It would just slowly spread, uh, and so this vampiric corruption was starting to change you. Right. Um, so with that said, you were kind of in a rush to figure out what was going on, which led you to one of her lieutenants. Um, and this lieutenant had their home in the mountain, which was the next <laughs> infamous course of action. It was also the very first time we blew something up, I think. <laughs> um, so so for, for what we've gone through so far... Um, how much of that was planned, and how much of it was you having to... <laughs> I, I, I know there's this big argument between um, kind of, you know, what some people call railroading through through a campaign, where you kind of, you know, if you're running a published book, you're, you're kind of stuck in this kind of funnel. You're, mm -hmm. you're using what is presented in the book, and your characters don't have as, as much freedom to kind of drift away from that. Um, obviously, we drifted quite a bit in your campaign. <laughs> um, so, ex you know, explain how you had to cope with that. Well, you know, that's kind of like the beauty of, like, in my opinion, when you put in the effort and the work to design your own homebrew creation, you know, your own homebrew world, is you, you truly get to go fully sandbox with it, where, you know, as the creator of the world you should know everything there is to know about it, you know. At any point, the players could go to any location and you would be able to tell them what's there. Um, so, a lot of the things you guys did 
um, as far as like places you went and stuff, you know, I, I just had the information for and could provide it with you. But then the actions you took in those places were very reactive from me. Um, you know, I kind of present you with some of these choices, like with, you know, are you going to save the dragon or are you going to kill the dragon? That is one of those where it's like, I don't have what comes next immediately planned, you know. Uh, like, I kind of do in a way where it's like, if you choose to save it, then you guys will fight the Hydra together with the dragon. If you guys would have chosen to kill it, then the flip would have been true. You would have fought the dragon with the Hydra. But then the Hydra would have just attacked you afterwards, you know. And so, uh, things like that are, are a little bit easier to react to, but then you get into the craziest, the craziness, like, what happened in the mountain. Exactly. <laughs> that... Just, there is no way you can truly prepare yourself for <laughs> for okay. what comes there. So, so let, let's get into that story. We, we had Thalzar with us. We had Astoyo with us when when, mm -hmm. when when we did that. When you initially embarked. Yeah. Right. The, there was still some, some trepidation from some of the characters in the group about Thalzar at that point. But I think Astoyo had kind of become established with the group to some extent. Um, and so we were going into this mountain lair of where one of the matron's lieutenants was. Mm -hmm. uh, and it kind of all started with, you know, Thelzar reverting to his dragon form, and he was able to fly you guys up to the mountain. Uh, but then during, you know, mid-flight during a patrol... Uh, this was after he had kind of dropped you guys off. He was just kind of flying around, you know, looking for other entrances and things. Uh, and he just fell out of the sky. Uh, and so he was kind of... You weren't really sure what happened to him, but, you know, his body falling uh, kind of set forth the events like you had to go into this only entrance that you had without really knowing. I think uh, he caused an avalanche when, yeah, when he, when and, he landed. And, and the avalanche kind of was the thing that pushed you into this cave because it's like, well, we're not going to stay out here. Right. Um, so uh, you guys went into the cavern and, and explored it. Um, and after exploring in a, in a combat or two, you found this large chunk of, of crystal that... Uh, you guys really didn't know anything about at the time. And this crystal was just like a big chunk and there were like veins of it that ran through the cavern itself that just kind of lit the way for you. Um, it was hooked up to some machinery, if I was. remember right. It was. Uh, <laughs> and not knowing, you know, really anything about it, you just kind of assumed that this crystal was probably bad. Right, because the machinery that it had been hooked up to had been responsible for clones that had been created that we had fought earlier, and we were afraid that it would keep producing them, if I remember correctly. There, there were these vats. Mm -hmm. I, I that, remember those. I, I, don't think, I, I don't think they ever got fully formed. Mm -hmm. But I remember fighting something yes. that looked yeah. like a couple of us. The yeah, that happened when you the clones joined you in the fight against the lieutenant, okay. um, and then after the con that combat was over, was when you started kind of exploring the place. And, and the first place you just happened to go to was this room that had this big crystal in it, uh, and. Yeah, you had more of this place mapped out in I your did. mind, and, I did. and we, we 
There were there were more rooms that kind of had notes and and like books and stuff that would kind of explain just a little bit of not only what was going on inside this cavern, but you know potentially what was going on with the matron herself. Um, but the first place you, you guys had stumbled into was this this crystal, uh, and and you know what happened to the crystals. So so <laughs> we we you know, obviously we we felt like we needed to get rid of this crystal. Um, I think there was there was quite a bit of discussion about it. I, I, I want to say we spent nearly an hour trying to decide what we were going to do. It was with this a long thing. time. Yeah. And so it came down to myself and Astoyo casting Moonbeam on the crystal. Mm -hmm. And Drex thunderstepped. Right. And Drex thunderstepped, destroying the crystal, which triggered... <laughs> Basically, the explosion of the entire mountaintop. <laughs> the the crystal was a source of power that they hadn't really explored, and when they basically supercharged this crystal with all of this magic, uh, it exploded. Um, and you know, this explosion, like you guys had an idea that it was going to explode, and so it didn't just kill all of you, but. <clears throat> You kind of saw that it was going to explode, and you knew you had to leave. Right. Um, which, as it as it started kind of triggering different things happening, there were a few minor explosions through the mountains that kind of began this, you know, almost chase scene like dice roll scenario that affected everybody involved. Poor where, soil. <laughs> uh, where everybody had to to roll dice and use different skill checks to to make their escape. And uh, unfortunately, I was rolling for Astoyo, and I was rolling like garbage. Um, and uh, at one point, he had fallen into a ravine because he didn't make his skill checks. He had failed like three of them in a row, and he, he just fell into a ravine. Um, and and you know, Knox and I kept trying to go back for him, mm -hmm. but we couldn't get to him. You, you did go back for him because uh, it eventually, like, you realized as a party that Astoria wasn't with you anymore. And you went to go back for him, um, and uh, you had pretty good indication that, that it was about to explode, but, you know, you really didn't want to leave him there. And so, so you kind of had to do another ingenuity moment of using... Um, I, can't, I think you used, like, control water... I use tidal wave. I, I use I use uh, that was tidal wave, and I think Knox did something. And we essentially created a a water barrier. So when the flame wave came at us, I, it still hurt us, but it was somewhat dissipated a little bit mm -hmm. by this barrier of water that between us and it. And, yeah, which probably saved or saved the lives of both. Me I, and well, because the the flame wave, um, you know, did significantly less damage to you. But then there was the actual explosion part, that the force part of it that wasn't the the fire that hit you that did a lot of damage. And I think it knocked. I think it might have knocked you unconscious. I think it and, knocked us both unconscious. Um, yeah, but through the end of it, you guys were able to get pulled out and, and survive, but uh, unfortunately it had seemed that Astoyo had perished during this, and you know, at, at this point, uh, you now had to kind of explain this situation to his now, like, orphaned eight-year-old daughter, Anastasia. 
<laughs> and I think that was kind of the, the like turning point for a lot of characters for even if they didn't really like Estoyo, like, you know, it felt responsible for this child. Well, and the fact that he had basically given his life to help us, you know, to help us try to get rid of this <clears throat> mark and, and, and deal with the matron. I mean, yeah, I mean, he... he I, if I remember right, he essentially was trying to negotiate for for something in. He he wanted wanted something out of it. I don't remember exactly. He, what it was. he was looking for information, um, which this is probably the first time that I've probably brought it to light with all the pieces together. But he had journeyed to help you because he was looking for information. While well, he was looking for information about one of the other lieutenants, because one of the other lieutenants was the kind of werewolf that cursed them. Ah. And he was chasing after him. Yeah, I don't and, think we ever fa found that out. Because, um, uh, yeah, Cashin, uh, which you know, Cashin um, <laughs> uh, was the, the werewolf that had put the curse on on his family. Um, and so he was chasing after him. I see. He was also the one that was stalking Percy. Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the, the whole blowing up of the mountain was probably not something you had planned for. <laughs> no, and it, and it did have its alterations on the campaign, which, um, you know, afterwards you guys had that whole ordeal with Nick in the in the city. Oh, yeah. Um, which, you know, that whole, that whole planning process was just, you know, had to be kind of totally shifted because now the situation had changed where now... The resources in the mountain are no longer easily accessible. Um, okay, so l let's talk about Nick a little bit. <sighs> Do we? <laughs> Do you want to? <laughs> what was Nick's original purpose? Because I know you had planned for him to be somebody that we encountered at some point in the campaign. So What was he supposed to be? Nick Mateo was a governor in a city. He was one of three, and his role of, of the three governors was he was kind of the face. You know, he was the one who did a lot of the talkings. He was the diplomat, um, the negotiator. He was all of that. Um, and he wanted to talk to you guys about kind of potentially harvesting and using this resource, which uh, was divinite, which was a, a mineral that is exclusive to kind of my homebrew world. Um, that divinite is like divine energy left over for when gods did battle a long time ago and had basically condensed itself into this hardened crystal. Um, and when you blasted it with spells, you kind of chain reacted this <laughs> like contained divine <laughs> energy that is what caused the explosion. Um, but he wanted to use it, uh, and claims that he wanted to put up, like, a barrier around the city made of divinite so that gods could not get in, you know, in case they ever decided to come back and wanted to wage war on, on humanity again, or not on humanity, but on the world, uh, this city would be safe because it would be protected with divinite. But... Uh, he was it, supposed to be somewhat of an ally, right? Initially, yeah. He, he was kind of positioned to be an ally, but he was this very arrogant, very cocky, you know, charismatic character who, who just thought way too highly of himself and um, kind of rubbed some of you guys the, the wrong way. So I think Percy 
and Drex and Knox were kind of in on his side. Um, they they kind of agreed with him. Um, I know Theo, my character, was very much against him and probably drove that message quite a bit and kind of because I didn't like the idea of trying to cut a city off from the gods. You know, how would clerics work? Mm-hmm. You know, how would druids work? If, if, you know, if these characters couldn't couldn't contact their gods, their abilities wouldn't work. You know, that was kind of kind of where Theo was coming from. You know, it, it just seemed wrong to cut this city off from the gods. Um, but he he really. You know, from Theo's perspective, he just didn't feel like a good person. So we ended up pretty much turning him into a villain. Uh, almost. I wouldn't say he necessarily became a villain, but he was definitely a rejected ally um, from, you know, just a morality and and kind of, like, self-views kind of way where, you know... I wasn't necessarily... I was kind of taken by surprise because I didn't expect... You know, I didn't expect all of my enemies to be turned into allies and the <laughs> the kind of first really big ally that I have offered get turned away and almost, like you said, into an enemy. Um, but... <laughs> uh, but yeah, you, you didn't end up uh, agreeing with him and you, you chose not to, to side with him and his cause. Um... Which, again, was another kind of thing that ended up kind of shaping the story because then, you know, that kind of plot line that I had, had maybe thought about going down was, you know, no longer... Well, it had already been tampered with with the mountain exploding and now it was kind of almost out the window because of, of you know, you didn't want to side with him. But, you know... Now, the, the, this whole town, and, and we ended up interacting with the other two governors, I think. I think mm-hmm. one more than the other, but... Yeah. But... It, it had this whole Moss Eisley feel to it. It, it really seemed like... And, and I want to say they were all thieves, the guilds that were basically running this city, but it really kind of had that feel to it, mm-hmm. to some extent. It, it was protected, you know, one of the governors, the one that you guys interacted with the most, um, she was kind of the, the one that oversaw the, like, militia part of it, the military side. And then the third one, which you guys never really interacted with, was the, like, he controlled the underground, you know? He was kind of the behind-the-scenes, black market, you know, uh, like, thieves' guild. Kind of kept the undercity in check so that there was this this unison of, like, agreement between, like, good and evil, where the, the city itself was fairly neutral, but, you know, fr- from a morality standpoint, you could view it either way. You know, is it corrupt because the higher powers are siding with the dark sides of the city? Um, you know, or is it a sense of peace? You know, there's no fighting, there's really no crime, everything just kind of happens in the background. And so the city itself was designed to be kind of a, a morality question. And a lot of the characters that you met there were... Very gray. Very, very gray area. I, I remember the bar... When we first got back, I think it was when we came back from the mountain, or mm-hmm. maybe it was after, before we went. We had that encounter in the bar with the. Uh, it, it was right when you the knolls, I yeah. think. Yeah. The, like knoll the like, the Nolcusa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to say hitman, but 
they were basically thugs there to, to go after this guy who I, I think had a debt to them or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we kind of kind of got in the way of that. <laughs> a little. Um, so so let's jump ahead a little bit. Mm-hmm. We got to talk about the tower. Okay. Okay. So, real quick, before we get into the tower, um, I do kind of want to to go back just a little bit to Anastasia. Okay. And the events that led to the tower. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, as we had, had kind of just talked about with Anastasia, you know, she was Estoyo's daughter, and you guys had kind of really taken taken her under your wing as, as feeling a little bit responsible, you know, for her in... Yeah, we we essentially adopted ways. her in, into the group. Yeah, um, um, you know after after Astoyo died, you know seemingly the curse on the family had lifted, and her eyesight came back to her, and she could see again. And when she could see again, she became you know the more time she spent around you guys, the the more kind of out of her shell she came, and kind of you know really kind of blossomed into into a, a young girl, um, you know who just was all about the chaotic fun that children like to have. And um, so, you, you know, I, I really felt like you guys had grown pretty attached to her pretty we had, quickly. We had. And uh, one of the rewards, um, I, I had you guys fight these these big tunnel worms. Um, and they were I, essentially your version of a purple worm, I think. Pretty much, yeah. They just kind of burrow their way underground and they just live in mountains. Um, and... Just for fun, because I hadn't really done any, like, big magic items. After the combat against them, I had everybody roll on the magic item chart to figure out which magic item chart you were going to land on and which magic item you were going to get. And so, there were, you know, some pretty cool items thrown around, but none more, like, iconic than Drex. Uh, One of our players got the deck of many things... And when he got the deck, I had him roll again, and he got a full deck. It wasn't like half a deck or ten cards or whatever. He got the full thing, the full shebang. And, and, and Drex, Warlock, mm-hmm. um, but he he was very much in the vein of Grok from Critical Role. Yeah, I would say that's a fair comparison, yeah. yeah. I, I think he had higher intelligence than Grog. Barely. Barely. <laughs> but, you know, he drank a lot. At least until he couldn't get drunk anymore. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Drex had the deck of many things. And, um, you know, I think, you know, the, the kind of first ex- the wave of excitement, I think one of the cards was pulled, you know, pretty much immediately, almost. It, it, very soon after the deck had been acquired, he had pulled a card from it, and it, it was something good. Um, I think most of the cards he pulled were pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um... And, you know, so you got the deck, and the deck had kind of become, like, just the way that Drex was as a character, kind of like Grog, you know, it's kind of ironic because Grog got the deck too, Um, you know, he's just one of those characters that you don't want to, you don't really know if you trust him (laughs) with an item that powerful. One of the most dangerous magical items in the game, given to one of the most... Given to a drunken fool. Basically. <laughs> uh, the happy-go-lucky, you know, good heart, but... Small brain. 
Uh, yeah, and, you know, because of that, it, the, the deck had kind of stirred up a lot of conversation in the group about, like, you know, every time he'd be like, eh, what if I kind of feel like pulling one, and I would be like, no! Like, <laughs> don't pull another card! Uh, <laughs> we, were, we were very nervous about the deck. Uh, well, you guys had gone back to, to your keep at one point, and... Uh, the keeps that we got from Selzar. Yep. Who, uh -huh. who, who we wouldn't have had that keep had we <laughs> not, had you not saved helped him. him. <laughs> yep. Uh, and the deck had just caused such a stir. And, you know, Anastasia was a child. You know, she wanted to see what all the fuss was about. And so I, I rolled a, a sleight of hand check against Drex's perception and uh, he didn't pass. And so she ended up swiping a card from the deck. Now, you didn't trigger the effect right away, if I remember right, because her and I were out kind of by ourselves. We, we, were, we had gone out to the moat. I was kind of teaching her some things about swimming and, and shape-shifting into aquatic creatures, if I remember right, or we were mm -hmm. talking about her or something. Because her being a druid and, and being able to shape-shift as well, you know, having gotten that from, from Astoil, I had kind of taken on the job of teaching her about druid ways. Mm -hmm. You and, and Al. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when you tra trigger the card. Well, so she hadn't, like in my vision of it, she had taken the card, but she hadn't looked at it yet. So she didn't know what it was. And until, like, in my thought process was until she flipped the card over to reveal what it was, the effects weren't going to trigger but yeah, when she was, was with you, kind of sitting out by the, the moat, um, you know, she kind of showed you, like, that sheepish smile that kids get when they're like, hey, I did something you want to see. Um, and she showed you that she took a card, and then as soon as she uh, showed you what it was, I think we at the table for the first time flipped over the card. Um, I knew what it was, cause I, but, you know, I had picked the card at... at the top card of the deck, it was totally random. You know, it could have been anything. Uh, I took the top card, and I looked at it to see what it was. And then, you know, this moment happened, and we flipped the card over. And it was... Uh, I think it was the Void, maybe? No, it was the Donjon. The Donjon, yeah, that's right. And so the Donjon card says that basically her her soul is, is taken and is kept prisoner by a otherworldly being um and so it just it fit just too perfectly into the story that this otherworldly being that took her was the kind of end game villain that you guys were setting up to fight a creature known as the hound hydra yeah an immortal who was stuck in the plane of water and was trying to figure out his way out the, the hound hydra had essentially forced my people and everything out of the out of the plane of water mm -hmm. if you guys are familiar with with the game mass effect uh a immortal is basically a, the same thing as like a reaper where it exists to purge all life um but a long time ago the gods sealed them away in kind of their own pocket dimension but there was a world event that had happened and one of these immortals got trace of it and it tried to jump from its pocket dimension into the material world and it missed and it landed in the plane of water where it began kind of its conquest to not only purge life in the uh, aquatic plane, the plane of water, but also figure out how it could then get from the plane of water to the material plane. And 
Now, when I wrote Theo's backstory and kind of mentioned the Plane of Water, I had no idea about the Hound Hider or anything. I hadn't brought any of that up. Was that something you had created as an extension of my backstory? Or was that something that you had kind of thought about as far as the overall plot of the campaign when you were putting it together at the beginning? And, uh, it, just, and it just happened to work. A little bit of both, where it was you know influenced by your backstory. Um, I, I didn't expect it to be tied in quite so closely as it ended up being but you know i kind of knew at the beginning what i wanted to do with like all these water attacks and stuff and i wanted to include the hydra in there because you guys had gotten hints about it as early as that hydra fight where you found the staff um and the staff had the markings of the hydra on it it had like this the religious cult symbol basically on the staff right and this was an aquatic staff that you i could use to control water and it had these squiggly tentacles and we gave it all sorts of nasty names yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but you know you were kind of the one who who really tied in the importance of the plane of water to your character you know if if your original, you know, home in the plane of water hadn't been so important to you, you know, who knows how that would have shaped, you know, just how far you would have gone to fight the Hound Hydra. Um, but kind of going back to Anastasia, you know, once her, her soul, her, her being had been taken, that was a point where the campaign kind of really started kicking into, like, the final, final phase. Right. I, I remember I remember Theo getting up and running and screaming, you know, going into the keep. I, I don't remember who he was yelling, probably Thelzar or something. And it's not being picked up. But uh, you know, and, and screaming out that she was gone. Mm-hmm. And and that kind of triggered this whole cascade of events that led us into eventually going after the house. And, and like complete irony. Like, the very next card that was drawn out of the deck was a wish, was the card that gives you the wish, like a wish, uh, and you had uh, wished to know the location of where she was at. Yeah. And that revealed that she had been taken by the Hound Hydra. I think that's another one we debated quite a bit on the use of, mm-hmm. um, because we, I, I think we talked about maybe using the wish to bring her back. But we weren't sure if it would actually work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, based off of the the way the donjon works. But yeah, yeah. that I, I I think it worked out better with us finding out where she was as opposed to anything. So now that we have the context of where the decimating things came from. And why the, the, you know, the kind of acceleration of the campaign started to happen where, you know, the group's kind of deep connection and attachment to Anastasia and, like, prioritizing her safety, uh, that kind of kicked off the, the end game events, which leads you to the tower. <laughs> leads us to Talara's Tower. Now, Talara's Tower is this wizard's tower on, out on this island. Um, in the middle of a storm, the, it was magically generated storm. Um, we ended up having to put together a pretty hefty crew, uh, most of which were characters from my backstory. Characters from your backstory, characters you had met kind of along your journey. Yep. Y- you know, the yeah. captain of this ship was the the very first quest you guys ever took as a party was to cross. Uh, you know, this little 
like cross the ocean, but not like a super long ways to go from this little port town to Arcanium. Um, it's like crossing the Adriatic Sea. It was this like it was the ocean, but it was this bay type of type yeah. place. Um, and you had gotten a a, um, a captain, you know, Lisa, Captain Lisa, to sail you across here. And uh, I think that's where we ended up with the butt touch. Yep, that was the butt <laughs> touch. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so you know, Lisa had kind of gotten. She wasn't as like. Imp- like tied to you guys as like Anastasia was, but I mean she was a, a pretty big character having known her for so long. Right. Uh, you know she was the captain of this this boat that you guys had been gifted to make this journey. Right. And we had gone to Stanton, which is um, it's not where my character was from, but it was close. I had spent several years there and kind of gotten connected with this group of uh, people that were about my character's age or a little bit older who had kind of taken care of me uh, before I had gone off to become a druid. Uh, one of who was Sebastian Flounder, <laughs> who, who was a uh, kind of like the Fagin character of my character's story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, several of my friends from Stanton uh, who had you know, worked on boats and stuff because mm-hmm. Stanton was a big port city. And so they were on that ship with us when we went down to the island. Uh, Kai, Kai's brother. Yeah, Kai's brother. His brother was on the ship. Um, yeah, there's, you guys put together a pretty big crew to to journey to this island of people that you trusted and people that you had known for, for a long time. Yep. And so we get down to this island, and we got to go through this tower. And the, the tower was, you know, Talara is a exceptionally powerful wizard who... Has been around for a very, very long time. But she was a divine knight, right? Yes. Okay. Um, yep. And, and divine knights in, in my world are basically just people chosen by gods to, you know, up, uphold their, you know, religious moralities and stuff. And so she was chosen by the god of magic to um, be his divine champion. But she really just didn't want anything to do with anyone and just kind of wanted to live on her island in peace. Um, but uh, when you guys had gone there, she was she kind of she knew why you were there and you know could really get behind your cause. But you know you had to go through the same trials everybody else did. You had to climb her tower and get to the top if you wanted to talk to her. Uh, and so each floor of this tower that you guys went through was different from the last. You know some floors were were combat, some floors were puzzles. Um, and as a player. I am very bad at puzzles. I, I don't have... I have some short-term memory issues, so being able to understand puzzles is a struggle for me. Um, and they frustrate me very easily. And I, I made this clear ahead of time as we were going into this, but I was willing to try. Yeah, and uh, you ended up climbing, I think, and got... Um, to to floor five, where um, floor five you had entered into the the restroom, um, n- not a bathroom, a room of rest, I should say, not a restroom, but a room of rest. Uh, and when you guys were trying to rest in there, you know this this place had basically been the the puzzle for this floor was the the room of rest. 
Um, it kind of put us into this Groundhog Day type scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, and you weren't quite sure what the conditions were to, to get through the puzzle. Um, you had kind of trialed and errored a couple times, uh, you know, in the room. Uh, now, how many floors were actually in this tower? Who knows? <laughs> how many had you designed? Um, my original plan was ten. Ten. There floors. were there was going to be ten floors. And this is about halfway through. It was halfway. Yep. And that's kind of where I, I designed it in mind, where I figured about halfway through there was really only one big combat. Um, but some of the puzzles you guys used spells and stuff on to get through, and so well, I we, figured we were all pretty well tapped out at this uh, point. I, really I figured right about floor five would be the spot where you would probably choose to rest, and so I had kind of put this puzzle in the in this room of rest intentionally, um, hoping that this would would be the case. And uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> The, the puzzle basically happened when you guys attempted to long rest in this room. Um, you know, the inside of this room was basically like a luxury tavern hotel type spot where it was like, you know, really nice beds, very big living space, uh, just a very cozy place. Uh, and when you would attempt to long rest, um, you guys were basically visited through, through dreams, which ended up being the puzzle of this room. Uh, that presented challenges that you know you had to overcome and overcoming them was the kind of solution to the puzzle in a way so so the first time that we tried to long rest i ended up getting visited by leviathan who was actually one of your gods mm -hmm. yes he was a god in my world specifically was kind of like even though you, like you weren't a super religious person in the way that like a cleric or a paladin is like I would have, I would say that saying Leviathan was your god was a pretty safe assumption at that yeah. point. Yeah, and basically, god of, god of the sea, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, um, I'd interacted with him somewhat um, a couple of times uh, during the during the game. Um, not necessarily directly, but had kind of reached out to Leviathan and gotten some information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, after kind of going through this dream sequence, uh, the first night, uh, everybody failed the puzzle the first night. Everybody. Um, which then kind of led us into round into night two of doing and trying to long rest again. Because um, after everybody failed, you were not rewarded with the effects of a long rest. Uh, so you guys did it again, and... Uh, what what happened on night two? So on night two, I think everybody had gone through their thing, and I think I was the last person on night two. Mm -hmm. um, I was visited by my father, my my adopted father, um, and I basically ignored him. You know, he was trying to be very nice, trying to, you know. I don't remember exactly what he was saying to me, but I essentially ignored him. Now, I was very frustrated going through the second one because, you know, listening to what was happening to everybody else's table, I really couldn't figure out what was going on. I, I was kind of stuck. And so as 
my father is talking to me in this dream sequence, you know, and I'm just trying trying to think, okay, what am I going to do to get out of this damn room and get a long rest? Because there's no way I'm going to be able to continue in this tower with all of my resources basically gone. I don't think I had any spell slots left mm -hmm. except for maybe like one or two first level level spells. I didn't have any wild shapes left. I was basically tapped out. Mm -hmm. I, I think I'd also taken some damage um, f from the combat that we had had, I, I think, I, or, or something. But you, you guys were pretty drained. Yeah. So all I was thinking about was, how am I going to get out of this? Why my father is basically trying to have this heart-to-heart -heart conversation, and I'm not wanting to have anything to do with it. And so... I look around the room, and I see Drex laying over there. And I know he's got the deck of many things. I get up. My father is still trying to have this conversation. I go grab the deck of many things, and I pull all the cards, and I throw them out on the table. Now, I have a, f a physical copy, or a physical prop for the deck of many things, and I actually pulled out all those cards, and I just dumped them on the table. Yup. <laughs> Oh, and you can imagine me, the dungeon master, like, oh, no. <laughs> so we picked up the cards and we put them back in the order that they, like, because they weren't, like, thrown and sprawled across the table. They were just kind of... They were kind of in a pile. Yeah, and you could kind was, of figure out which one was which. It's easy enough to put the deck back together in the way that it should have been. And so I started flipping cards off the top until we got to one that would inevitably cause the stack to stop. And I think we drew six cards mm -hmm. before we got it, to... And most of them, like, most of them were pretty good. Some of them we kind of ignored, like, the flip alignment and stuff, because um, we didn't really... Yeah, we don't really... I mean, alignment is, is, is present in your games, but it's not, like... It, it doesn't really dictate the characters. Correct. Um, and so, like, we kind of ignored a couple of those, but... <laughs> We ended up stopping the, on the void. On the void, and that's the one where your soul gets transported to another plane. Um, however, the tower kind of existed within its own like pocket realm, and so when your when an outside force was attempting to interact with this inside force that was the tower, uh, you know immediately Talara knew about it. And so uh, she, like, stepped in to intervene to basically stop the effects of this card from happening. Um, but the two forces colliding basically opened this rift. And the rift that opened was a rift to the plane of water. Um, the creature trying to take your soul was the Hound Hydra. And so... Now, I wasn't entirely certain all of this was actually happening because we were technically still in the dream state when I drew those cards, but it ended up having an actual effect on the tower. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, with not really a whole lot of time to do, you know, Talara, again, like I mentioned earlier, knew that you guys were there for this reason, and so you didn't really have to plead your case to her, she kind of just immediately jumped in to help. Um, but she jumped in, said, we gotta go, and she teleported everyone out of there as this <laughs> rift opened and out started to emerge 
the Hound Hydra, which ended up destroying and breaking my lovely tower <laughs> only halfway through. Um, but this, this, you know, the end game was here now. The Hydra was here. Right. Uh, which kind of immediately sent, uh, like, chain reacted the the finale of the campaign yeah i mean we could have easily gone another month in the game had we not you know had we finished the tower I, we could have gone another and month had, you know but just because we kind of i let you keep your soul i didn't let the card render your character you know inoperable but there were consequences for this action oh, were there and it wasn't just the tower no. falling Everybody who was on that ship that took us down to the island died. All of my friends. Kai's brother. Kai being one of the other characters in our party. Um, Lisa. Everybody on that ship died. As Talara only teleported you guys out back to your keep. Everybody else who was there uh, eventually succumbed to the, the combat. and Yeah, became a victim of the Hound Hydra. And... Which later on, they then came back to life as like undead sea creatures that Divinus. were now dominated by the Hound Hydra. Uh, and during the final fight leading up to it, they were they were now enemies that you had to fight. Right. So that's kind of like a, a very quick point to point recap of all the major events. But you know, every single one of them was a that we talked about from the mountain, you know, Astoyo and Thelzar the tower, the deck of many things, like all of those are, were just like un like unplanned, unforeseen things that had just huge ripple effects on the entirety of the campaign. It, it was basically the players as their characters driving the story from, you know, one event to the next and, and having to deal with the repercussions and not just a story that was kind of predetermined or predestined. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had an overall plot and an overall idea of what you wanted to have happen in the campaign, but because of our actions, you took and molded those to fit what we were doing. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, so we kind of talked about in the last episode a little bit how the back half, like, kind of going from level 16 to 18 kind of happened so quickly. Well, here's kind of the, the context behind you know why that had happened so quickly and it was just that's just the way the story went and right. i think kind of naturally flowing with you know how the dice and how the events and character actions uh even though it kind of rushed the ending a little bit uh, it felt natural it felt like this is the result of the actions of that you guys had taken um and you know we, we've kind of spent a long like most of this talking about how like the negative sides of the things you have done <laughs> but i mean you know there were tons of positives you know too you know well I, not only that but those are all events that we as a group remember mm -hmm. and we still talk about e even you know some of the th like like blowing up the mountain that was early in the game that was like three years in it you know that that was only a couple of months into the game and we were talking about it three, three years later. Yeah. You know, we're, we're still talking about it today. Yeah. And, you know, th th these are things that, th these are memorable moments that we're probably going to always have fun with and cherish and have a laugh with. And, you know, whenever we get together as, as people, we're going to talk about them. Because mm -hmm. they're part of our shared story. And I'm looking forward. I hope we have the same moments 
you know, when we when we sit and play your next campaign, I hope you guys have the same moments in my next campaign. Uh, you know, I, I do look forward to it. Now, we are getting close to running out of time. I, I do want to talk about one other event that I think kind of threw you off guard. There is very end. When um, we were essentially... We had defeated the Hound Hydra, mm -hmm. and we were visited. At the very... The, 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 the yeah, final where thing? Where Theo ended up making a decision. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, why don't you talk about it? Well, <laughs> um, I, I don't remember the, the name of the name of the individual that was visiting us, um, but it was one of the gods, if I remember correct. It was actually, wasn't it? It um, was Sol Solterra and Ravian, which in my world, they're, they're sisters of life and death. Solterra was kind of the sun goddess who you know, really cherished life and everything kind of happy about it. And Ravian was the flip side. She was the goddess of death and kind of embraced the kind of darker sides of life. They're like the yin and yang of, of right. the world. And they kind of gave our group a choice. As, yes, because, you know, in the end you ultimately defeated the Hound Hydra. You guys were victorious and you had basically done the gods a very big favor by killing this thing. Um, and so at the end of it, they had, had chosen to grant you, you know, a boon, a, basically a wish that could go beyond normal wish spectrums. Right. Um, and you were given the choice of, uh, earlier when we had kind of briefly talked about it, but kind of glanced over it where there was a like large scale combat where the Hound Hydra had first appeared. Um, they basically had a huge map of the continent and they had uh, like a huge war council meeting and they got to decide where all of these allies that they had gathered through the entire course of the campaign and even some new faces that they hadn't met but had come to this council meeting to acknowledge the fact that this is a world level threat. Um, we ended up losing quite a few of those people throughout the combat campaign that encountered. Yeah. Um, yeah. You guys got to choose where on the map you wanted to kind of deploy all these people, and then we would die roll to see how successful they were at defending or attacking. Um, like an, it was almost an old, kind of like an old school war game. Yeah. They had a map, like a strategy, had counter strategy. Yeah. yeah. And and some of these people that got lost were not just important to us as characters, but they were important to the world. Mm -hmm. You know, they were pretty important political figures, like. Um, uh, Godwin, mm -hmm. you know, one of the members of the Metallic Council w w was lost during that fight, and then several others. Well, and that choice specifically was, you know, basically the, like, one of two rulers, either Queen Serenia, who was queen on one half of the continent you're currently playing on, or Godwin, who's part of a council that rules an entirely other continent. Um, you know, I think that one was probably, like, the big one in terms of, like, how many people this is going to affect. Right. But, you know, something, like, condensed down, like, you guys were probably in control of somewhere between 30 and 40 people during that battle, and they were all people you had met at some point over the course of the campaign. Because right. we had built this entire war coalition to essentially prepare the continent you know, for this invasion. And a lot of them did perish in the in the combats. You know, they, they didn't make it. And... At the very end, you were presented with a choice of, you know, which side you wanted to... The, the, they told you they would bring back one group. 
They would either revive everybody who died uh, in the in that like continental wide fight, the the large scale fight, where although maybe those characters weren't as important to you, they were important to the world, you know, the continent, the country. Um, or you could bring back everybody on the ship who was lost, which, which was were... a much smaller group of people, but had a much higher sentimental value. Yeah, we, we were much more attached to everybody on that ship, you know, between Lisa and, and my, my, basically my family, mm-hmm. my adopted family, and, you know, Kai's brother and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also a price. One of us had to essentially become a Divine Knight. Mm-hmm. Had to step into the role of Basically, as somebody who has lived through this, had to step into the role of ensuring that it doesn't happen again with divine blessing. Um, and you could either choose to side with, you know, become a divine knight of Solterra or a divine knight of Ravian. And in doing so, they would revive all of these people. So we end up choosing to bring back the group from the Continental fight um, because. It, I believe it was mostly because we felt like they were more important to the world. And while it was sad to lose all these people that we were personally attached to, the the loss of all these important people would have left a power vacuum on this continent and had probably brought chaos. We, we don't know where that story would have gone. You know, we were at the end of the campaign, but it would have left a significant problem for this continent. Yeah. Almost as bad as the invasion itself. Um, Yeah, and so the, you know, even all the way through the finale, the final thing of the game was still, you guys were left with a a decision to make that would ultimately, you know, shape the course of the future. Although that was the end of the campaign and we didn't really explore into really how far that would go, it was still a pretty big decision that, you know, was the, the final one of the campaign. Right. And even though Leviathan was really kind of the god that my, that Theo had followed throughout the entire campaign, I'm the one that ended up, Theo ended up being the one who stepped forward and chose to become a divine knight, and I ended up choosing Sultara. Mm-hmm. So Theo became a divine knight of Sultara, which was somewhat out of character for him, but it was like... It really kind of felt like for him, the the proper thing to do, um, and it just it kind of kind of worked for him. Mm-hmm. You know, I I know that there had been kind of this push towards either Theo or Knox becoming a divine knight of Leviathan, because um, we, we were both following Leviathan pretty close. Uh, Knox cleric, I think, right? Mm-hmm. If I remember right. Yep. Um, and I had had quite a bit of personal attachments to Leviathan, but you know, I, I wanted all these people back. I needed, we needed all these people back. So, at, at the very least, you know, uh, after the fight and everything was over, um, you guys were reunited with Anastasia again. Mm-hmm. And kind of a long personal goal of the campaign, um, you guys did. Well, essentially, uh, once you got high enough level, resurrected Astorio as well. Right. Yeah, we brought back Astorio. Only to 
you know, sent him into battle again. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he nearly got lost he again. He almost died again. Ah. <laughs> uh, well, we had to fight against Anastasia there for part of that fight as yeah. well. Because she was she controlled. Was, she was being controlled by, by Gil. Mm -hmm. yeah. So much player agency. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of that game, game and that campaign. And, and one of the things I liked about it so much is that so much of our player actions and character actions really drove that story. You know, it, it goes back to this whole idea and this concept of D&D is group storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, you came up with the plot of the campaign and had, had an overall idea, and then we messed with it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I think we, we both know that we, re we both really enjoyed that campaign, um, you know, was there ever a point, other, other than maybe blowing up the tower, that you felt kind of overwhelmed with some of the choices that we made? Um, not really. I, like, there were, there were some sessions, I think, I don't remember if it was the Anastasia session or if it was the tower session. I think it was the tower session that we ended up calling the session like an hour earlier than we usually do. Because it was such a unexpected course of events that I was like, I need to figure out what happens next. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I, I do remember ending that one uh, early. Yeah, that one was early. Um, but I, I think, you know, just because I, like, you know, from my perspective, from the, the dungeon master and the creator of this world that you were playing in, I felt exceedingly confident in everything about my world. That although you guys did off the wall scenarios, I felt like if I just sat down for a little bit and just thought about, you know, what could what could come of this, that there was never a point where I felt like overwhelmed. I did. There were times where I did have to sit down and think, like, oh, okay, what comes next? Right. Um, because it was something that was you know pretty far out there that I just didn't plan for. But. And you did a lot of background work for the world too. I mean, you basically had ideas for what everything was where and who who we could interact with. I mean, I, I know we kind of came up with some random things here and there along the way, but for the most part, you had a lot of it worked out. So it, while, while you did all that work up front, you know, it, there, there's so much of that continent left that we can explore later. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and, you know, even though, like, that's all just the background work, because really... Like, having all that background established is what paves the way for the players to just do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, yeah, like I, I said earlier, you know, I'm looking forward to, to doing it again on a whole new continent with whole new faces. Yep, and being also in a campaign where you're the player. And yeah. You get to run me through the Yes, <laughs> I cannot wait. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Well, I, I think we have gone over time for this one. Um, it, it was great having you back. Yeah, um, anytime. So, uh, we're we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up here. Um, thank you for joining, and um, until next time, everybody have a good one. Goodbye.